everyone. I am honored and privileged to be able to bring the word to you this Mother's Day weekend. And since Ross did such a great job of setting us up for Mother's Day, I'll dive right in and start with some quotes about mothers. First is a Chinese proverb that says this, there is only one pretty child in the world and every mother has it. Well, I'm not sure how they count it because I have four, but it's a good thought. Okay, how about this from comedian Phyllis Diller? I want, I want my children to have all the things I couldn't afford, and then I want to move in with them. <laughs> I'm sure this next one was written by a teen or young adult. Mom, I love you, even though I will never accept your friend request. Ouch, but true. And finally, since we're in the Old Testament, here is a Jewish proverb that we can take a look at. A mother understands what a child does not say. Very profound and true. So as the culture pauses to celebrate and honor our mothers, we want to do the same and honor the mothers worshiping with us here and online who inspire everyone by looking more closely at a mother who was also a judge in the Old Testament named Deborah. I've entitled today's message, A Heart of Devotion, because that could serve as the description of any mother. In fact, many parts of scripture describe God as being tender-hearted and devoted to his people, just as a mother is to his, her child. Well, God certainly honors and endorses a mother's devotion to her children, yet he requires that the primary place of devotion in all of our hearts, the mothers, the fathers, the men, the women, and all the children, that that primary place of devotion belongs to God alone. Now, Deborah is remembered as one of Israel's standout judges, not because she was a woman, but because she had a heart of singular devotion to God. And the text doesn't give us much detail about Deborah's biological children. In fact, it doesn't mention them at all. But it speaks with certainty about her spiritual children. In fact, she is called by this great title, the mother of Israel. And so as we honor and nurture the care we received from our mothers, we also want to recognize those women who have invested in us spiritually and serve as our spiritual mothers, those who have blessed us and modeled lives of faithfulness that we can look to them as we try to walk our paths of faithfulness after them. They, they motivate us to follow Jesus because they look more and more like him. Well, hopefully you were with us last week when Pastor Allen introduced this series and described what the world looked like in the time of the judges. Here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to jump to the end of the book of Judges with this description from Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days when Israel had no king, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Sounds like a pretty contemporary description, doesn't it? eerily similar to 2022. Even though the scholars date the period of the judges to the Iron Age about 1,200 years before Jesus was born. But as we fast forward to 2022, some things haven't changed. People are still doing what is right in their own eyes. And to many, both inside and outside the church, it seems as if the world is careening sideways and picking up speed as it goes. Right is wrong, wrong is right, up is down, down is up. It's the you do you. You know, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth because in the mind of popular culture, there is no truth. 
The relativistic mantra of our age is, whatever. But the world is locked in the grip of hopelessness. And for those even well-grounded, it's hard to summon up the courage to read the headlines and gaze out onto the darkening landscape. And so how do we regain the ground when every form of evil is a quick click away on a tablet or smartphone? What do we have in our arsenal to combat the gods of our age, the ones that battle against us, the traps of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Well, to know the God of the Bible is to see that our solutions aren't likely to come from a program, but from a person. God began revealing himself to a people who were called to represent him to the rest of the world. God chose Israel to be a people set apart, uniquely his own. He made a covenant with them. He gave them his law through his servant Moses. He led them through the wilderness and to the edge of the promised land. They only needed to go in and take it, but they failed. They settled for part of the land because they settled for part-time or partial obedience. And while Israel abandoned their part of the covenant with God, God never abandoned them. Israel suffered the consequences of their disobedience and sin, but God never abandoned them. He reached out to rescue them time and time and time again using his appointed servants. And Deborah was one such servant. He moved through her to quench the chaos and soothe the suffering. And through her leadership and devotion, God drew Israel back to himself. But Deborah was an unexpected leader. She's among only a handful of women prophets listed in scripture, and she's the only woman judge. Interestingly, there are only two people who held the title of both prophet and judge, only Deborah and Samuel. And she was the only judge only prophet in the period of the judges. So in the language of our day, she was a total boss. But how did she get there? How did she achieve that status? Even though she led a successful military campaign, she was not a warrior. Her power did not come from her physical strength. Even though Deborah wielded enormous influence over Israel as a prophet, but her stature among the people wasn't because she was born into an influential family or maneuvered her way through the ranks due to political intrigue. Judges were not elected. They did not inherit the office. Instead, they were appointed by God, raised up for a specific task, often in a time of crisis or need. But what I want you to walk away with today is less about what Deborah did and more about who Deborah was. And to make it easier for all of us, I've created three descriptors that, like Deborah, begin with the letter D. Here we go. Deborah was devoted, determined, and discerning. It began with her heart of devotion. She was devoted to God, his purposes, and his people. And it was out of that deep well of devotion that sprang a fierce determination and keen discernment. But since it was her devotion that fueled those other qualities, I want to focus on that core. And here's the takeaway from Deborah's life for all of us today. Your devotion determines your destiny. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you that you are here in our midst, for you promise to gather when two or three are here in your name. But Lord, we're aware 
that words on a page are nothing without your spirit's infusion of power. That my words will be nothing but noise in the air unless you give them life. And so I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would fall on my mind and heart, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room and who are listening online, that they would receive the message you have crafted for them, that it would speak to the deep places of their heart, that your truth would resonate with ours, and we would be illuminated by your word, for you are the living God. We thank you and praise you and ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. You know, we're all devoted to something. Something holds the top spot in your life and this top spot in mine. It's the thing we give the place of honor. We give it prominence in our thought life. We give it weight in our decisions. We allow it to determine our priorities. What you're devoted to impacts the way you act, how you spend your time, what you spend your money on, and everything in between. Bob Dylan, who some would call a modern-day prophet, wrote a song in 1979 entitled, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And the chorus goes like this, well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. The thing you serve is in essence the thing you are worshiping, and that is the object of your devotion. So I'd like to invite you to open your Bible or your app to the book of Judges, and in there you'll find Deborah's story in the fourth and fifth chapters. And as we start, we're going to take a quick look at Deborah's resume. In Judges chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we're given a quick bio of Deborah. This is what we know about her. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. In the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. Notice we're told four things about Deborah. First, she was a prophet. Second, she was the wife of Lapidoth. Third, she was leading or judging Israel at that time. And fourth, Israel went to her for judgment. That is, they accepted her leadership in matters of importance and in settling disputes. And I want to point out that as this account unfolds, the text tells us that Deborah has been judging Israel for some time. She wasn't a newbie. That God had raised her up. He had given her prominence among her people and set her in a place of leadership. Now, perhaps it was her faithfulness to the call of God on her life and by faithfully providing leadership that he assigned her a new task that we're going to explore today. And he asked her to partner with him in the rescue of Israel. She proved faithful in small things, and so God entrusted her with more. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says this, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Maybe as the Lord scanned the earth, listening to the cries of the Israelites, his gaze fall on Deborah, and she was the right person for the job because her heart was fully committed to him. Being a woman didn't disqualify her for the task any more than being, an, than being uneducated disqualified the disciples. Deborah and the disciples may have been unexpected leaders, but they shared a quality highly valued by the Lord. When the Lord called them, they said yes. They were willing. Remember, the Lord does not look at people the way we do. 
When the prophet Samuel perused a group of Jesse's sons, the spirit directed him to pass over all the older ones, all the likely ones, all the logical ones, until David was brought in from tending the sheep and stood before, Dan, stood before Samuel. And Samuel said, yes, that is the Lord's anointed. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord is watching. He's examining. He wants to call us into his service. Okay, before we dive into the story, let's review the cycle that is repeated over and over again in this, throughout the story of the judges. The leader died. In this story, it was Ehud who went before Deborah. And after the leader died, the people fell away and did evil. And the evil they did was to follow after the pagan gods of the nations around them. They shifted their loyalty from the living God to the pagan gods. They worshiped those pagan gods in the pagan ways. And that included child sacrifice and other revolting idolatrous practices. God punished them then by handing them over to their enemies. And then they cried out for deliverance to the very God whom they had betrayed. But God heard their cry and he moved in compassion and exacted their rescue. So as we begin chapter 4, it opens with this familiar refrain. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to, to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. So as we begin our story, Israel is in about mid-cycle. Things are growing more chaotic. The violence was affecting everyday life. Chapter 5 goes on to to describe the fact that the people were forced off the major highways. They had to travel over through the open country or on the back winding roads just because there was so much violence on the streets. They lived in constant fear. They were totally dominated by Sisera's army, his 900 chariots fitted with armor, with iron. Now, we can't be sure what they looked like exactly and how that iron played out on a chariot, but they were fearsome machines. They functioned like mobile platforms for attack. They could slide through the valleys and position themselves against oncoming troops on foot. And their superior technology totally dominated Israel. Israel suffered under the oppression of Jabin and Sisera for 20 years. Did you catch that? 20 years. It took them 20 years of suffering before they came to the end of themselves and remembered God. Well, perhaps they had lost sight of God during their season of relative peace and prosperity. And because the violence and the chaos in their lives grew in small increments, it took them years before they realized how desperate their situation was. And they didn't have to live like that anymore. But notice, too, it was the people's cry that launched God's rescue. It wasn't something initiated by the rulers or the politicians or the social media influencers. It was the people themselves who cried out to God. They got fed up with the chaos and they got on their knees. Well, that's a lesson for us. 
We need to see that we as God's people can be a catalyst for change. We can position ourselves to be a flow through of his power and impact the world around us. But we have to be willing to stop. We have to stop looking for solutions from the systems of this world and partner with the living God by walking in obedience to his word, living out a radical devotion to him, a devotion that shows up in our everyday lives. Look, I'm not trying to be simplistic. I know it's hard. I don't know the enemies you're facing, and you might feel totally outgunned. They might be fitted with iron. But I'm here to tell you, God His arm has not weakened. He is still mighty to save. And if you're at the end of yourself, good. So fall on your knees and call out to him, just like the Israelites. He is listening, and he is strong enough to save. He has more weapons at his disposal than any enemy, even the most armored ones. I know it's humbling to ask. But if we're too proud to ask, we will never receive and will remain under the oppression of the evil one forever. When Israel finally cried out, when Israel finally asked, God moved into action and he moved to the rescue. And his rescue began by speaking to his servant, prophet Deborah. He sent her a word to Barak, an Israelite military leader who lived in the hill country far away from the palm where she posted up. Barak actually was a neighbor to the enemy general Sisera. Here's the account in chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak, a seasoned commander and warrior, he is the logical human hero of the story. But God is less interested in your experience than he is in your heart. Because Barak, for all his military honors, lacked a heart of devotion. And we'll see that play out in our story. As Deborah relayed God's battle plan to him, it was very simple and very straightforward. God would lead Sisera and his troops to the Kishon River, and then God would hand them over to Barak. Well, we're not told told what Barak thought about this proposed battle plan, but it's clear he was looking through the lens of the flesh, and according to that lens, this plan made no sense. Remember, Sisera's strength was in his chariots. To send the chariots to the river was totally illogical. His troops and his chariots would make mincemeat of the Israelite army because they could maneuver easily on the flat plain of the river valley. Besides that, the Kishon River wasn't much of a river, except in the rainy season. And while we're not told what season it was, perhaps it was indeed the dry season when the mighty river wasn't much more than a trickle. 
but God is not limited to human ways of thinking. F.B. Meyer was a friend of D.L. Moody's and a contemporary of A.B. Simpson who founded the Alliance, and he said this, Unbelief puts circumstances between us and God, but belief puts God between us and our circumstances. Now, I want to drive that home with this illustration. Let's say that the podium here is God. God's word proclaimed from this place. Okay, this is God. And the monitor is my circumstances. So unbelief is going to try to see God through my circumstances. And let you take my word for it. The podium is totally obliterated by my circumstances right now. I can't see God. All I can see are my circumstances. That's unbelief. But belief... takes a different perspective, changes their point of view, and looks at God and then the circumstances. Barak wasn't looking with the lens of faith. He wasn't thinking about God. He was thinking about those 900 chariots. He hadn't practiced or disciplined himself to see his circumstances through that lens of faith because his God wasn't big enough. And here's that partial obedience that's endemic in the book of Judges. Because Barak had one eye on Deborah and the other eye on those chariots. And that was his mistake. He needed to put both eyes on the Lord God, who is mighty to save and victorious in battle. And our consequences have actions because Barak's half-hearted obedience cost him the privilege and blessing of being used in a mighty way by God. And he forfeited honor because he lacked faith. And that was a big deal in an honor and shame culture. And Barak gave it all up. Perhaps he was treating Deborah like a good luck charm. He didn't really trust in his own ability to hear from the Lord, and he needed to rely on her. He needed her discernment because he hadn't developed his own. He doubted that in the fray of the battle, he would not be able to recognize the voice of God, even if God screamed in his ear. Well, it's a cautionary tale for us. It can be hard to hear God in the crisis. And so if the water of your life is smooth and your boat is gliding easily, take the time to draw near. Establish the lifeline of hearing his voice when your life is quiet, when you have peace. Because then when the chaos hits, you'll already understand what he sounds like. You'll recognize his voice because you spent the time in advance. Of course, we don't know what Barak was thinking, but whatever he was thinking, he acted like a coward. And he disobeyed God's directive and then tried to manipulate the outcome. Deborah, however, showed enormous bravery. She was determined and she marched into the battle with him because she was sure God had spoken. She didn't hesitate. She took God at his word and she was determined to obey. We're going to finish up the rest of the story. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 14. I'll summarize the rest of the account. And Deborah, there in the battle with Barak, said, Get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. And when Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Well, later in chapter 5, we learn that that panic among Sisera's troops was caused by a torrential downpour that swelled the Kishon River in minutes. It became a raging rapid. 
And in the midst of the pounding rain and the muddy ground, those chariots were useless. Sisera ran away from the battlefield, leaving his troops to face total destruction. And he too was killed by a woman. God brought the victory on the battlefield that day and confirmed his word as recorded in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I'm not sure what chariots you're trusting in today, but I want to challenge you. They will not save. I want to encourage you to call upon the name of the Lord. Let him determine the plan. Let him choose the weapons. He may ask you to saddle up and go into battle, or he may say, get out of the way. Just stand there and trust me. Either way, your first step is to get on your knees and ask. It is the wise among us who will seek him first. You know, Deborah may have been an unexpected leader, but God delights in turning conventional wisdom on its head. The Israelites appeared to have no hesitation in taking Deborah at her word and trusting her for judgment, but it's likely the Canaanite enemies derided Israel for their woman judge. 1,200 years later, after Deborah lived, in a stable in Bethlehem was born a little baby, a helpless one, who was gonna show the world the power of love. He is the master of the great turnaround. For God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. In a few minutes, I'm gonna pray and offer a prayer over our mothers. But before I do, I wanna review those descriptors of Deborah so you can drill them down in your heart and your mind. First, Deborah was devoted. She was devoted to the Lord and to his people. She poured everything out in service and submission to him. Second, Deborah was determined. She was determined for God's glory. She was determined to be faithful. She didn't even give up when her personal safety was at risk. And immediately after the battle, Deborah penned an epic poem of praise to God that's recorded in Judges chapter 5. She was determined to tell the story of God's deliverance. She wanted to instruct the people like a mother. She was, never wanted to miss an opportunity to teach. And third, Deborah was discerning. She practiced listening for the voice of God. She knew his word, could recognize his voice, and that's why she could see him so clearly, even though the landscape was dark and covered with a cloudy haze. She stood in the gap for God's people. She didn't just enjoy her special relationship with God for herself. No, she poured it out and shared it with those around her. She poured it out in service. And she understood that while she was God's chosen servant, the true hero of the story was God. He was the one making the rescue. He is the one mighty to save. He is the one who lifts your head. God didn't expect Deborah to save Israel And he doesn't expect us to save anybody either because he's already done that through his son, Jesus. And as we look out on our own cloudy landscape, we must not be duped into thinking we can win God's battle using anything like the weapons of the world. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people around us. It's against the powers and the principalities that are maneuvering in our world with increasing freedom and strength. And we need to take the land. We need to take it back. In the world of whatevers, the battle begins by proclaiming truth and living it out, giving feet to our faith 
And truth isn't found in a program, but in a person. For Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So may we as a people be devoted to our Lord Jesus and so filled with his truth, be determined for his glory, discerning of his ways, that we might be a flow through of his power and be agents of rescue in this world. For the darkness is coming, let us shine the light for him that all may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And as we are a flow through, perhaps God, as he gazes across the earth, looking for hearts who are fully committed, will strengthen us and send us out. I'm convinced he will if we are willing. Well, I'd like to ask the mothers who are worshiping here with us in the sanctuary today to stand and for those around them to extend a hand so that we might pray over them and ask for the Lord's blessing for a fresh unfilling of his gifts and his spirit that they could minister to all those who are under their care. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the privilege of motherhood. It is a gift given for you are the one who opens wombs. And we thank you for these women who stand in this place and for those who are standing in our online congregation. And we pray a blessing over each one. Represented in this group, undoubtedly are women who have babies in arms all the way up through uh, children who have children of their own. But as a mother, you never lose sight of your child. And so I pray, Lord, that you will pour out your blessings on each one of these women, that they will have an abundance of patience, an abundance of joy, and an overflow of love. And that they would be the wise words, the gentle correction, the welcoming arms to their children forever and ever and ever. That in their care and compassion, their loving concern, that they would represent you. For they would draw their strength from you, Lord, alone. That you would be the source of their strength, that their devotion would begin with you and flow then to their children. And you would be glorified in their lives so their children could see you in their mother's lives. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of mothering, but is it a task not for the weak? And so we pray you would empower all those who stand and that we would be faithful to lift them up before you. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Lord, for our mothers.